merciful God, gracious God, and Heavenly Father, we thank you so, so very much for your love, your grace, for your word. And we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that as we study your word, we hear your word. We are filled by your truth, by your righteousness, increasing us evermore in faith in Jesus. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I say the word uncompromising, what comes to mind? I'm not looking for a response right now, but kind of in your mind, what comes to mind when you think of the word uncompromising? I mean, it can kind of go one of two directions, right? So somebody who is uncompromising in their beliefs, even when there is pressure to change, can be seen in a positive light, that they are standing firm in the face of pressure. But it also can be seen in a very negative light, can't it? Somebody who is being stubborn, pig-headed, you know, prideful, so on. So it all really depends on which side of the line you're standing on, whether it is seen as a positive thing or a negative thing. Uncompromising. See, let me give you an example. In our current age, if you say that the Bible really is God's Word through and through, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and that those who reject Jesus have the promise of hell, not salvation, that you say that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman, or that there are only two genders in this life, you are either seen as somebody who is holding up God's Word, and thus, in a good light, you are uncompromising, or you are seen now as a Christian extremist. Kind of really matters what line of the you're standing on, right? Which side of the line are you standing on? On God's Word? Or the culture? Or even the government? Or the law? Which side are you standing on? Now, intellectually, right? Intellectually, this is pretty easy to understand, isn't it? Standing up for Jesus. But when push comes to shove, it gets dicier, doesn't it? When you're actually in a real situation, all of a sudden that decision of which side you stand on becomes a costly decision. Because following Jesus is costly. So if you want, there are sermon notes. For those who are visitors, we have sermon notes for each sermon. A lot of them are filling in the blank. But following Jesus means having an uncompromising faith in Him and all that He commands. And if you want a sermon note, just raise your hand and we'll have someone get one to you. Following Jesus means having an uncompromising faith in Him and all that He commands. Following Jesus takes a commitment. And it is a commitment that seems unreasonable, doesn't it? In this world, following Jesus and what He says, especially if you read the Gospel message, is very unreasonable. Let the dead bury their dead. That is not a reasonable commitment, it seems. But Jesus says following Him is an uncompromising faith. An uncompromising 
in being his disciple. And depending on where you live, following Jesus can lead to persecution, ostracism, separation of families. You might have to give up things that seem dear to this world, but you're holding on to the things that are dear for eternity. And I think in our time, our age, the line has never been more clear. So today we're going to take a look at uncompromising faith in Daniel chapter 3. Now, Dennis did a great job reading. It is a long chapter comparatively when you read it out. And there's a lot of story that goes with it. And quite frankly, there's so much that I can't do all of it in one sermon. I'm not going to try to compress it, so we're going to do part one of Daniel chapter 3, and next week we're going to finish it up. So, this morning we're going to take a look at basically two things. The pressure to conform or to compromise. The pressure to compromise and a faith that will not compromise. So we're going to go with the pressure to compromise. Daniel chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now look, in this particular chapter, there's a lot of story, right? And there's a repetition of the story. And it's really tempting to like skip all that stuff and get to the good part. Like, you know, when a movie builds up in an action sequence, you just want to get to the action part. Don't tell me all about this backstory. But if you don't understand the backstory, what's going on in Daniel, you don't understand how important the decision that those three men made. So we have to do some context here. The context is King Nebuchadnezzar had made a statue. Now, this statue was big. It says it was 60 cubits tall. A cubit is about 18 inches. So it was about 90 feet tall, and it was uh, six cubits wide, so that would have been about nine feet wide. Kind of a tall, skinny statue of some sort. We, we actually don't know what image it was, although it was so tall that you could probably see this for miles. And we don't know what image, but most likely it was the image of a Babylonian god. And it was all covered with gold. It wasn't solid gold. It would have been probably an overlay of gold. And they would have had a smelting furnace, an ore furnace, to be able to help with all the construction. So that's where the furnace comes in. So it would have been this gold statue. And when the music played, gives a meaning to face the music, doesn't it? When the music played, you were to bow down at this idol. And that's what we have to discuss here. Idol or idolatry. Now we talk a lot or might mention the word idol or idolatry, but we rarely define it. So Webster's Dictionary says this, it is the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing. In simple terms, an idol is anyone or anything that replaces the one true God. And in our culture, we have many different idols. As a matter of fact, there's one 
show about singers. What's it called? American Idol, right? That's been on forever. So we have many different idols, but it is anyone or anything that replaces the one true God. But what's the big deal about idolatry, right? I mean, okay, so we worship other things. Is that such a big deal? Well, what does God have to say about that? Go to the Ten Commandments, right? What's the first commandment? This is a responsorial. What's the first commandment? No other gods before me, right? Let's take a look at it a little bit more. I'm going to read actually Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down before them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. It is emphatic in how it's stated. So just how serious is idolatry? Well, if you take a look in the Bible, there's some things that God has to say about idolatry. So I've given a bunch of uh, references on screen here, but it is an abomination to God. That's a word that's not used very often, but abomination, a deep, hateful thing. It's hateful to God. It is vain and foolish. It is bloody. It is defiling. It is whoring. If you read Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you know, them bones and bones, those dry bones, right? The spiritual death of Israel. Well, Israel was dead because it was in an adulterous relationship with all these other gods and all these other things that God said don't do, and they were doing it. So Ezekiel is one of the books that uses adultery and whoring the most regarding idolatry. This is also why it says God is a jealous God because he is jealous for the relationship. Think of a man and a wife, that type of protection of the relationship that you would have with him. John MacArthur, uh, in his sermon on Daniel chapter 3, says this, Idolatry makes men forget God. Go astray from God, pollute the name of God, defile the sanctuary of God estrange themselves from God, forsake God, hate God, and provoke God. And the Bible says that idolatry will be punished with a judicial death, a dreadful judgment which ends in death, banishment, exclusion from heaven, and eternal torment. I hope you can understand the importance of this first commandment. It is no, no small thing. But why do we need this commandment in the first place? Well, it's because our own sinful nature from the get-go wants to worship anything else but God. And I mean, it all started with the garden, in the Garden of Eden, right? Eat the fruit, and then you will be like God. 
And then we talked about uh, a couple months ago, Moses going up the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. And what do the people build while he's there? And golden calf, an idol. And so we see idolatry even there. And we see it throughout the Old Testament again and again and again. And I think this is the important part. When people make idols, they make an idol that glorifies their own desires and pursuits. We make God a God, lowercase g, we make a God in our own image. How do you know that? If you've got a God that approves of everything that you do, you've got an idol. And that's the ultimate rebellion against God, isn't it? That's why the first commandment, because it's the ultimate rebellion against God. Idolatry is always an abandonment of God's standard of morality or righteousness, and that leads to a standard of moral behavior and sin. We make idols out of our own lusts and desires. And by the way, if you read about many of the idols, the false gods in the Old Testament, what are you going to see? You're going to see a lot about sexuality. Unbridled sexuality. And why is that? Because the lust of the flesh is the greatest draw to leave the one true God. Paul wrote about this in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So you can hopefully see that from the garden to the Exodus, to Ezekiel, to Daniel, to Romans, and even all the way to our very age, idolatry is in our hearts from the get-go. And yes, has our technology changed from that? Because people say, well, we're, we're more sophisticated. Well, yes, our technology has changed, but has our morality changed? No, it hasn't, not at all. The depravity of the human heart is still there. So here's the question. What happens now when those in power, whether that's culture, government, laws, leaders, so forth, say to you, you must bow down to this thing that God detests. And if you don't bow down, by the way, we're going to punish you. We're either going to put you in jail, we'll fine you, we'll publicly shame you, and we'll threaten you, death threats, everything. And there's so many examples of what's been happening in our culture today. If you're a baker, if you're a florist, if you're a t-shirt maker, if you're almost anything, right? I mean, this is real stuff that we're talking about here. This isn't just Daniel thousands of years ago. This is real stuff 
in front of us. And the pressure to compromise is so real. I mean, there's an internal pressure, right? An internal pressure that you don't want to be seen as a hater. You don't want to be seen as somebody who is rocking the boat. And you certainly don't want somebody to call you a right-wing Christian extremist. And by the way, some of that language has been creeping into the culture now. That if you hold that the Bible really is God's Word and that Jesus is the only way of salvation, I mean, you're now being labeled as an extremist. So the pressure to conform is great. How do you stand up to that? For us, Standing up in the face of pressure takes an uncompromising faith. And this faith is not based on the law, but on the gospel. So what does that mean? It means we are not standing simply on uh, morality. We're not trying to be good moral people, although we should, right? What we're standing on is the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. And the new life that we have in Him and the forgiveness of sin that we have in Him, we are standing on the Gospel. And that is what will make you strong throughout your life. It's not the law, it's the Gospel. It takes abiding in Christ Jesus, His cross, His Gospel. And when you stand firm in that, more and more, you don't bow down to whatever pressure may come your way. Let me tell you about a man who did not bow down. His name is Randy Elkhorn. Anybody know Randy Elkhorn? Written a lot of books. Prolific author. Uh, He was the pastor of a very successful church. He had founded in the 80s. It was going very well. By the early 90s, uh, he was writing his books. Uh, Life was good. He was also on the board of a pro-life organization, uh, a pregnancy resource center. And he would join people outside of the abortion clinic and stand there and try to persuade women not to go in to keep their child. He uh, was there. Oh, and by the way, no laws were broken by anything that he did. Not one single law was broken. He says this, We simply stood in front of the doors to advocate on behalf of unborn children scheduled to die. I did this nine times in 12-month period and was arrested seven of those times. Ultimately, the abortion clinic sued them. They gave trumped-up charges. They lied. Uh, And by the way, just read the story about Abby Johnson and you'll find out all about how Organizations like that will pressure and lie and distort the truth. But anyway, Randy Elkhorn and the others lost legal battle. And Elkhorn said that he poured out his heart to the judge as to why he could not in good conscience give money to abortion facilities and why he and others throughout history had engaged in civil disobedience to defend human rights, including the fundamental right to life. So he was fined and sentenced two days in jail. But he found out that the church was going to be garnished to pay for the legal cost. So because he did not want any money whatsoever to go to the abortion clinic or for the church to have to pay that or for the church to have to 
be in civil disobedience to government, he stepped down from being a pastor. Shortly afterwards, he was sued by a second abortion clinic, he and a group of people. They gave a judgment for the abortion clinic of $8.2 million. It amounted to $250,000 for every defendant at that time. It was the largest punitive uh, um, judgment against peaceful protesters. That's the first half of the story. You want to hear the second half, you've got to come back next week. What would you do? What would you do faced with that pressure? Because that pressure was real. This is not just an intellectual exercise. It was a real decision he had to make. Do you bow down before the culture? Even before the powers that be, the government, the laws. See, take all of this now and go back to Daniel. They were told whoever does not fall down and worship would go into fiery furnace. They would die. So everybody fell down, right? Except for those three. They would not bow. They would not compromise their faith. So let's talk about a faith that will not compromise. Uh, I'm going to read 14 through 15. Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He's giving them an out, isn't he? Rather than immediately put them in, he's, you got another chance. I'm going to give you one more chance. Just bow down, would you? But what do they say to him? They say this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, going on, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So the men made no apology, did they? I mean, this is quite a thing to be able to say to a king. They said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Uh, I think a better translation is this. We have no need to defend ourselves in this matter. They, they didn't have to defend themselves. They didn't have to defend their beliefs. And this, again, is very different than our culture right now. Our culture demands an apology from everybody. Whatever you did in your childhood, they demand an apology. And you see people, person after person, going on, in essence, an apology tour. And our culture demands that you, as Christians, also apologize for your extremist beliefs. Do you ever feel like you get silenced? 
because of that, because you're playing defense so much, and that you have to apologize every single time for saying Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation? I mean, maybe this day, right now, this day, is the day you finally say, no more apologies. I don't apologize anymore for believing that Jesus is my Lord and Savior and the Bible is God's word through and through. You see, we have on the walls in our sanctuary, on our website, in many different places, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for, for salvation to everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed to say this day, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I make no apologies for this. That God's Word is the Bible. The Bible is God's Word. And I make no apologies for this. And that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ as well as I can be only through the power of the Holy Spirit day in and day out. I make no apology for this. Because I am sure of His promises for me and for everyone who believes. Of this I am certain, of this here I stand. Now when the three men were saying this to the king, they didn't say it in a way to anger the king. It wasn't like they were trying to stick it to the king, saying, oh yeah, well we make no apologies, King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, that would have actually gotten them killed. They had no need to apologize. They were firm in their beliefs. And they were gracious in what they were saying. See, ultimately, an uncompromising faith is a gracious faith. And we have the example of Christ Jesus and His grace and mercy throughout. Did He get angry at some people? Sure, the Pharisees, some others. But when He was led to the cross, He went to the cross. Not saying a word. So we have his example when we are faced with the pressure to compromise. And you know what? For me, the cross is that dividing line in the world. You're either standing on the side with the cross or on the side against the cross. This is the line that we have to choose. So an uncompromising faith is also a gracious faith. And you need not have worry when you stand with Christ Jesus and His cross. When you stand on the side of Jesus and His cross, you need not be anxious or angry about what men will do, even in the face of death. So we did a series with uh, Philippians. And I don't know if you remember, but Paul, right? Paul was in jail, and ultimately he was going to be put to death, right? But this is what it says in Philippians chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is better. It says, look, if I'm living, I've got work to do for Christ. And if I die, oh, 
I am with Christ eternally. He had no fear. So the men were convicted of their faith. They would not bow down to an idol. And they said this, if this be so, our God, if you throw us in the furnace, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Because of God's sovereign will, they stood fast no matter what, no matter the circumstances. One commentator, Kent Hughes, put it this way. Biblical faith has the assurance to say, I know my God is able to deliver me. It has the confidence to say, I believe that my God will deliver me. But it also has the submission to say, but even if he does not, I will still trust him. Now, many people, you know, they, they are pretty strong in that first statement. I know that my God is able to deliver me. We go, yep, God is sovereign. He's all powerful. He can. But then there's the hemming and the hawing on that second one. Rather than I believe my God will deliver me, the word that people would probably put in there is, I hope God delivers me. Right? I'm not sure. Roll the dice here. And that's where the fear comes in. Rather than say, I believe. But it's also trusting God no matter what. That even if we are not saved from a certain situation, I trust Him in all things. And just like Job, Job said, even though He slay me, yet I trust Him. So for us to have the certainty of Christ Jesus, His cross and resurrection. It's the difference of saying, I hope that Jesus rose from the dead. But on Easter we say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. There's the certainty that He has risen from the dead. And because of that certainty, we will be delivered. Whether it is in this situation or another, ultimately we have eternal life with Him. That is the certainty of our hope. And then come what may, we trust in His will. No matter the circumstances, I trust God in all things. Whether I live or die, I trust in Him. Whether I'm rich or poor, I trust in Him in all things. Whether I'm surrounded by powerful enemies on all sides, I will trust in Him. Go back to the Psalm 23rd Psalm. Though I walk through what? The valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's what it's saying here. Whether I'm surrounded by powerful enemies on all sides, I, will, I still will trust Him even when we are thrown into the fire. Okay. There's a lot there, right? Standing firm, uncompromising in the gospel message. Christ Jesus and His cross. For you today, I want you to start to think through this account in Daniel chapter 3. Three questions for you. Where do you feel the most pressure to compromise your faith? And maybe the thing for you today is this, just this. 
this day you say, no more apologies. No more. Second, are you abiding in Christ Jesus, His cross, and His gospel? Come to the foot of the cross. If you are weak, He is strong, as it says in the song, right? Come to His cross, read His word, be filled by His strength. And finally, are you growing in your trust of Jesus in all circumstances? Some people have that from the get-go. For me, it's been a journey. Right? It's been a journey. And the more I trust Him, the stronger I am, the stronger I stand, no matter what. And to that, everybody says, Amen.